Hey, Paul, did you ever hear that England doesn't have a kidney bank? I No, I did not hear that, Matt. But Paul, you'll be glad to know it does have a Liverpool. Great. No, nothing? (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, you'll find out why that's relevant soon enough. It is not. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash, like moral hospital, and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And on tonight's show, it's hotcakes. We're gonna be going through a whole bunch of articles and you'll you'll help us figure out whether or not they're practice changing, but we'll certainly give you our take before we introduce our two wonderful co-hosts for this. Uh, Paul, will you remind people, what is it that we do on The Curbsiders? Sure. Normally, we are the internal medicine. I mean, we're always the internal medicine podcast, but typically we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Matt, you just beautifully outlined um, the hotcakes format. So we're going to go through some potentially practice changing articles and try to pick them apart, but not with any kind of nihilism, but with uh, a hopeful yet critical eye um, aided by our two co-hosts, which I'm just going to go ahead and say the names. Can I say the names, Matt? Yep, I'm not sure do. people are just dying of suspense. So we were joined by Dr. Nora Toronto and Rahul Ganatra. Hey, guys. And this now makes even less sense now that people can watch on video and see who's with us because <laughs> we're, it's not like we're hiding them. Um, but, but I did want to remind people that uh, this and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And we are going to get to our first article here. Rahul, you want to start us off? So for my contribution to this week's hotcakes, I'm going to be talking about the Transform HF study. And this was a study by Mentz and colleagues, and it appeared in a January 2023 issue of JAMA. So the research question that these authors were asking was, among patients hospitalized with acute heart failure, does torsamide reduce all-cause mortality compared with furosemide by at least 20% within 12 months? So you might be asking, why is this study important? Well, it turns out there is laboratory, pharmacologic, and clinical evidence to support the hypothesis that torsamide might work better than furosemide. Torsamide is thought to block the aldosterone receptor, uh, leading to RAS inhibition, reduction in myocardial fibrosis. Um, Torsamide also has better oral bioavailability and a longer half-life than furosemide. And there's at least one RCT out there that found that torsamide was associated with lower readmissions for heart failure at one year compared with uh, furosemide. So Transform HF is sort of the long-awaited RCT intended to settle this question once and for all. So how was the study carried out? Well, this was a randomized, open-label, pragmatic comparative effectiveness trial. It was done at 60 hospitals in the United States from 2018 to 2022. 2,800 patients hospitalized with CHF were randomized to torsamide or furosemide at discharge, and the dose was determined by their treating clinicians, and they just followed up with their regular cardiologists in line with the pragmatic trial design. And the primary outcome in this study was time to death for many cause. So who were these patients? Well, the uh, mean age was 65, uh, a third of patients were women, one in three were black. Um, patients had both uh, chronic decompensated heart failure and acute de novo heart failure, meaning new diagnoses. 
Uh, they included patients with reduced and preserved ejection fractions. And what did the authors find? Well, the top-line findings were that there was no difference in all-cause mortality in this study. About 26% of patients in both groups died over a median follow-up of 17 months. And you can see this really unequivocally in figure two, and the results were kind of consistent across subgroups. So now that I've put the basics out there, I'll stop and ask, does anybody have any questions or observations they want to share about how the trial was carried out? I, I just first want to ask Paul about, Paul, Transform HF, what do you, what, how do you rate the trial name? It's solid. I mean, the cardiologists are always, always ahead of the curve with these. So this is, this is a nice one. So well done, team. Yeah. Nor, I think I cut you off there, but I just had to, had to ask Paul about the trial name. You know, he's a big trial. <laughs> Who head. died a little bit inside. Yeah. <laughs> no, I always spend like one to two minutes trying to figure out where the letters come from in these names. And so I did the same for this one today. <laughs> yeah, this is I, I like I like that they did this trial because this is one of those things where I think we we've talked about on the show before. Torsamide seems to have a much more predictable bioavailability, higher uh it's like 80 to 100 percent oral bioavailability versus Lasix is like 10 to 100 percent, at least according to some like 30-year-old study. So I, I I was excited to see this one done. Also, I, I haven't read it yet, but I because I just noticed that this was done. But Dr. Mm -hmm. Kittleson, the great Dr. Kittleson, wrote an mm -hmm. editorial about this. So certainly I'm gonna have to check that out after this. But Rahul, what do you want to point out about this study? Because I uh, I'd love to know how much you know, eventually your conclusion, but any limitations or anything you wanted to yeah. shine a light on? I mean, like you, Matt, I was also in the team torsamide camp thinking that, you know, based on all the reasons we've discussed, you know, torsamide I was expecting was going to have benefits that extended beyond the uh, period of acute hospitalization. Uh, and Tony Brew actually uh, put together a really outstanding Twitter thread on this question, kind of summarizing a lot of the data and we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but this was a negative study, and publication of negative studies is really important so that we can sort of, you know, decide if we think that a question is settled and, and can move on or not. And a question that often gets raised when you're talking about negative studies is, could this have been underpowered? Could this have been a false negative finding? And in my opinion, this study does not look like that. The way that a underpowered negative trial looks is when there is a difference in the point estimate, but the confidence interval just barely misses statistical significance. This was not the case. You know, it was 26.1 versus 26.2% of patients uh, who, who reached the primary outcome of all-cause mortality in each group. So really, it seems like they're drawn from the same population, no difference there. So... Um, you know, could there be subgroups in whom torsamide um, does have uh, benefits? Um, th that's something that's possible and is sort of impossible to um, really detect with a pragmatic trial. So that's one of the sacrifices we make. Um, but this is, I think, kind of how we could expect this to look if we were to roll these results uh, out to the general population is based on, you know, despite all the mechanistic um, reasons and hypotheses for why torsamide might be better, this to me is pretty compelling evidence that uh, for the general population at large, there's probably not a big difference. I was going to ask about the primary endpoint. Um, I, I thought the choice of mortality as an endpoint was an interesting one. Like, it's obviously it's important, even if you're talking about like you know knee pain. Um, but swinging like, yeah. for the fences, with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, I've said it before. Nothing affects quality of life like death. But I, but I mean, it's just for for a heart failure standpoint. I feel like there's a million possible targets. Can you comment on why why this one was chosen um, rather than sort of hospital readmissions, which I know is 
uh, a hot topic or, or I don't know, symptom management or like, you know, a, a million other things. Why, why death? And this is something you're kind of not used to seeing for uh, cardiology and in particular heart failure trials, right? We're used to seeing these composite uh, outcomes that, you know, contain lots of, of, of badness that is, is patient centered. So the choice of all cause mortality um, has some pros and some cons. One benefit of studying all cause mortality is that there is really no adjudication required. Either somebody is dead or they are not dead. So, uh, and it doesn't matter the cause. Um, So um, to determine uh, vital status in this study, they use something called the National Death Index, which, uh, you know, can be considered as very sensitive and specific for knowing if someone is dead. Um, so that's, that's, a. <laughs> we've, we've definitely talked about a study that used that before. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which one, but yeah. we, we have. I mean, so. this did make me wonder if, you know, reporting delays might be sort of a source of bias, but I, I couldn't really find anything, uh, um, to elucidate that. So that's, that's a benefit. A downside of studying all cause mortality is that this is sort of the cream of the crop of impact of a treatment on an outcome. And it can be difficult to show an impact on all cause mortality, particularly for something where the exposure and the outcome are separated in time um, by a large amount, where you know there's opportunities for other things to sort of occur that influence mortality. So it's a great outcome, um, particularly for an open-label study. Um, it uh, kind of you know removes any concern about the effect of uh, the lack of blinding on an outcome. Uh, it requires no adjudication, uh, and it's you know sort of easy to determine, but it can be hard to show an effect. So I, I think we're probably going to have to wrap up on this one because we have a big show tonight. So Rahul, what's what are your take homes for this? And if you if you dare give a hot cake rating, please, because at least at the very least, we know the hot cake rating. Yeah. Will annoy Paul. Oh, and I would not pass up that opportunity. Uh, so th- <laughs> this was a really well done study in my mind. It informs a really common clinical decision that we make in the inpatient setting. Um, I interpret these findings as kind of giving me license to use whichever loop diuretic the patient and I decide on. Um, and I think this was well done. Uh, this is important evidence. I give this four out of five hotcakes. Paul, next up, the floor is yours. So the paper I bring to the group is from uh, Zhao et al. Uh, from the Journal of the American Heart Association uh, this year, this month. And, uh, eating sleep intervals and weight change is what they looked at. So the article itself is the association of eating and sleeping intervals with weight change over time, the Daily 24 cohort. Um, and the question that the authors are asking is, does time-restricted eating or other sort of eating patterns uh, lead to weight loss or, or changes in weight in general? And this, I picked this article. I still feel ill-prepared to counsel patients largely about how to eat and sort of what to eat. And I know that we've talked about time-restricted or intermittent fasting before, and there's wild enthusiasm. And then more recently last year, there's an article that showed no real benefit over just calorie restriction. So I feel like there's still we still need some more data to kind of come up with good things to sort of tell our patients as to what to do. Because as you know, I just want to—I just want the answer. I don't—I <laughs> don't need <laughs> just nuance. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> so, it's—it's it's an interesting study. Um, it's—it's it's a multi-site perspective cohort study. So it's, it's two, three big health systems: uh, Johns Hopkins, Geisinger, and UPMC. And basically, what they did is they recruited patients through the electronic health record. So you had to have um, some sort of electronic uh, communication capacity, which I think is actually important. Um, patients were over the age of 18, and they had to have at least some sort of height and weight measurement in the HR within two years before enrollment. And they were recruited through the patient portal or through email. And I, I don't know about you all, but we can talk about this. But if you've ever gotten sort of messages through patient yeah. portal, unless you're expecting a result, I, there's zero chance I'm paying attention to that. Um, <laughs> and then when, it, when patients, you know, if they agreed to go through it, they went through the consent process and they filled out the questionnaire properly, didn't screen that up, then then they were enrolled and they logged their meals and 
how much they ate in terms of whether it was a small meal, a medium meal, or a large meal, how often they ate, and what their sleep looked like on an app that was sort of exclusive for the study that was designed by the authors um, all put together. And then they, they looked at the associations between what the patients recorded and changes in weight, with the, with the primary interest being in does the, the time-restricted eating impact weight loss or not. So I, I will say that the thing that we were hoping to see maybe was that this sort of time-restricted um, eating would actually cause weight loss, but time from first meal to last meal, so how much interval lapsed between when you first eat your first meal of the day and your last meal of the day, was not associated at all with weight change. Um, if you had more frequent smaller meals, that actually did seem to be associated with weight loss, and if you ate more frequent larger meals, you, you gain weight. So the suggestions that the authors are saying is that this is a suggestion that maybe total calories are still probably an important driver of, of at least weight gain. Um, which I, you know, to my money, is, is probably a reasonable, a reasonable conclusion. Paul, I wanted to, you, you mentioned, you made the joke about if you're getting messages from the EHR, I mean, they had to send 70,000 plus messages uh -huh. and then they recruited a thousand and then they ended up only getting about half of those people to actually use the daily 24 app to, to be enrolled in the study. And so I think that was, you know, th this is selecting a very specific type of person that's answering that kind of message, I guess. I guess that's a major limitation. That this was my, my, the thing that I thought most about, like, I don't think this was, I think this was a good study and I think it certainly has information, but in terms of the patient that would actually go through with this, like it's, it's a, someone who has technological literacy, who sort of invested in this kind of thing, who has the time to do it. I also think the fact that the the food intake was self-reported is interesting because people tend to underestimate the number of calories they eat. Um, yeah, that's that's been studied. And then the other thing that I thought was that this weird half-formed thought I had that I'd like to hear what you guys think about is that it's also been shown that people who track their meals also do better with weight loss as well. So mm -hmm. I wonder if this more frequent meals is not a marker of diligence rather than some some other sort of fancy. Um, you know, metabolic thing. You know, it's I don't have evidence to back that up, but I just I feel like there's lots of potential for for bias and confounding here. Even though I don't know how they would have done things much differently, but I think this selects for a specific type of patient. Um, and I think there's lots of chances to kind of misrepresent, not intentionally, how you eat and sort of what you've been eating. Yeah, I I was also kind of interested in the uh, the prior to uh, enrollment data compared to the prospective data um, and and the kind of intentionality that they tried to assess among yep. patients and uh, folks who were enrolled um, because the the goal at least as I could understand it uh, in recruiting individuals was not uh, to recruit people who wanted to lose weight it was just to assess uh, this but I do kind of wonder whether there's some uh, some component of uh, of mm. the observation from the study that that actually affected uh, activity and we don't really know exactly how it reflects activity in the real world mm -hmm. yep. yeah i mean paul you mentioned two of the biggest sources of problems in observational studies which is bias and confounding and i think that's like the best thing to be uh, on the lookout for in a paper like this and there's one additional problem that these authors highlight that was I think a fascinating example of this issue, something called reverse causality, which we've talked about on hotcakes before. And this is another way that the relationship between the exposure and the outcome can be distorted. And so the authors bring up the possibility, maybe people who lost weight are people who had underlying unmeasured illnesses that made them feel unwell. And that's why they ate less. And so the, you know, you can imagine like cachectic diseases making people feel unwell, their appetite goes down and it's in a, in a retrospective study or a study with retrospective elements, um, that can be really hard to tease out. So, um, good things to be on the lookout for. 
Yeah, I think this was like the the people on team, the people on team time restricted eating were hoping that the the shorter time from your first food to the last meal of the day was with you know helping with weight loss, which we didn't see here. And then uh, the old, I mean, for years I've had people say eat small, frequent meals, like that's a good way to lose weight, and. I never knew if that was really a thing or not. So we know from this, I don't think we can draw like super firm conclusions from this, but I I think that as of right now, you don't have super compelling evidence to tell people either way. Just maybe avoid, like Paul said, really large meals that'll make your overall calories be be more for the day. I did find it interesting that the the time to first meal from wake up uh, seemed to be uh, somehow related to less weight increase. I don't know whether you guys had any thoughts about that. And I, I you hear it kind of anecdotally uh, that breakfast or eating earlier in the day is better for energy metabolism, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure whether that's actually uh, data-based at all. Well, I saw a difference saying that should people who skip breakfast actually tend to lose more weight. So I, just, I feel right, like the, right. the more studies we do, the less we know. Um, so well, it, keep them up, I guess. It, it does make you wonder <laughs> if maybe the mechanism of any putative benefit in time-restricted eating is people just end up eating fewer calories. So that right. is yeah. you know compatible with the findings of this study. So yeah, I agree. I, I think it's not really clear. Yep. All right. Well, Paul, I think it's time for uh, take-home points and uh, and a bo- your bottom your yeah your take-home points and your hot cakes rating from this. Yeah, I mean, my take-home points is I, I'm glad that people are adding to this body of knowledge. It's because it's, it's something we're going to be talking about endlessly. Uh, I don't think this is super helpful in terms of guiding the discussion with patients, but you know, it's more data is always better, or you're usually better at least. So I'll, I'll give it. I, I I think I'm going to go say two and a half hot cakes. Um, spaced out over the course of the day. So eaten in six small meals. <laughs> <laughs> that was a home run. That was good. All right. Next up, uh, I'm going to be presenting a paper by Andrea Duran at Al. Uh, th- this is a group out of the Columbia University Medical Center in New York. And this was published uh, in December, published ahead of print in December, 2022. And they were trying to get, trying to answer the question, you know, what is the optimal frequency and duration for sedentary breaks to improve blood glucose? That was a primary outcome and blood pressure. That was a secondary outcome during an eight hour sedentary period. And, you know, you, you hear this sitting as the new smoking has been said over the past few years. And I actually looked it up and like, there, there's a paper from 2018, uh, which we could link to for the show notes, but it's hilarious. They're like, actually, that's not correct. So <laughs> while sitting is not great, like the the hazard ratio for mortality or whatever statistic they're looking at is like way less. Uh, smoking is definitely worse than sitting. Um, so, but still, I do still think this is an important study. And there are some associations with uh, sitting and mortality and uh, increased blood pressure and, and being sedentary. So we sh- it is worth looking at. So this is where they randomized... Um, it was only 11 healthy adults. They were actually trying to randomize more than that, uh, but they but COVID happened, so they kind of stopped enrollment. Uh, these were adults over 45 years old, and they were they had to be sedentary for about eight hours a day on average, and they couldn't be they couldn't have any underlying conditions, and they shouldn't be exercising too much, uh, no more than three days a week. And they brought them into a lab, and they gave them a standardized breakfast and lunch, and then they experimented with walking breaks on a treadmill 
uh, every half hour or every hour, and they varied the length of the breaks. They're trying to find like the minimal effective dose of light physical activity to improve blood sugar and blood pressure. So I thought it was a pretty cool study. And this got a lot of play in the news. The, the, the top line results is like, you know, uh, taking short breaks from sitting uh, can drastically lower your blood sugar and can lower your blood pressure. So that was the top line result. So questions, comments, concerns, maybe Rahul, we can we can start with you here. Yeah, um, I, Matt, I think your, um, the thoughts that you shared uh, before we recorded about this paper are really sophisticated. So I want to get out of your way and let you do that. I will just say though, this paper is full of gems of lines. There's a, a line where they describe walking and they say walking was selected as the activity modality because compared with other aerobic activities, it is popular, familiar, convenient, and free. I hope somebody describes interacting with me like that someday because that's just a home run. <laughs> what about you, Paul? Uh, anything, uh, any questions or, or comments? I, I More question. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this, but I would just like to hear you say, like, who who are these 11 people? You know, I, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, because they, it seems like they had they were pretty healthy sort of based on what I'm reading. But and yet, but they also didn't exercise and then also we're often sedentary. It's like this weird sort of unicorn person who's maybe not, and I, again, I apologize if you're one of the 11 people part of the study, <laughs> to make it to 45 without being intentional about being healthy and then not having any major health problems, which actually were excluded in, in my understanding yeah. from the study. So it's just, it's, so I guess I, wanted, I would like to hear about this population. Well, a fair amount of them had prediabetes. I think like uh, two of them are on blood pressure medication. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't like they were totally devoid, but they didn't have any major uh, major end organ disease, uh, uh, you know, uh, high blood pressure, I consider, I, I thought that would have been an exclusion criteria, but when I was mm -hmm. reading through some of the patients did have high blood pressure. Um, and, and so this, you know, the, what's interesting about this is they, they looked at both periods of one minutes, one minute of walking. It was just on a treadmill at like two miles per hour or five minutes of walking. And they, and then they did one minute uh, every 30 or five minutes, every 30 or one minute, every 60 or five minutes, every 60 minutes of sitting. And they found that, uh, for lowering blood sugar, it looks like five minutes out of every, th if you walk five minutes for every 30 minutes, you're sitting, that <laughs> seems to really lower blood sugar. And my reading of this was, it was like a, the difference between a totally sedentary person and somebody walking five minutes out of every 30, the, there was like almost a 33 point difference in blood sugar, you know, at the peak, um, after a meal. So they, they were giving them these standardized meals and then checking, they had continuous glucose monitors. They were checking every 15 minutes. So it did really blunt the peak. And they also had a lower, uh, nadir of the blood sugar as well compared to the people who were sedentary. So it did seem like it was regulating it. And then, and that was just seen really, the blood sugar effects were really just seen with the five minute walking group out of every 30 minutes, um, but not the five minutes walking every 60 minutes. So it's pretty frequent breaks. I'm, I'm not sure how realistic that is for the average like office worker, but the the blood pressure, even just walking one minute out of every 30 or one minute out of a, every 60, on average, there was like three to five minute, or three to five point drop in blood pressure just for taking those brief breaks. And I, I think, um, I mean, this, this, all this stuff about the blood sugar and blood pressure has been shown in other studies. They were just trying to find like a minimum effective dose for this and something that was practical. So I do think more research should be done on this. Um, I just think this was such a small and controlled study and a specific group of patients 
that I just wonder, would the effects be a lot bigger if you had a sicker group, like people w- who had dysregulated blood sugar? Would it, would it plummet even more? And would the blood pressure drop even more? Um, so I definitely think this is worth looking into because it's like, r- like Rahul said, it's, it's free and it's a familiar activity. <laughs> <laughs> and gosh darn it, it's fun. <laughs> I also wonder how it would compare uh, or add on to uh, the baseline exercise recommendations that we give to patients in general, not yes. that everyone is doing that. And so I kind of wonder whether if given that they completely uh, uh, restricted patients from actually exercising right. during the five days, kind of how that would change the results. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it like we, we talked on the last hotcakes about the 150 minutes, mm-hmm. whether you do it in one or right. two days, or if you do it, space it out over three or more days, you still reap those, those mortality benefits from that. But so, I mean, I think I, I think this is a, a very interesting and it makes for really sexy headlines, but uh, this is why it's important to always look it up because, you know, this is not, I, I think this, this is a great like sort of hypothesis generating study in my opinion, but not necessarily one that we can all just automatically tell everyone to start taking five minute breaks out of every 30. Although I don't think that would hurt people. It probably sounds get pretty good, more actually. closer to their activity goal. Can I say one more thing? I shouldn't yeah. have squandered my time joking around because I did have one thing I actually <laughs> wanted to say. Th- this study had a uh, red flag for me. Uh, this was a positive trial, meaning a association was shown between you know some uh, of one of their exposures and the outcome. But um, when I go to look up the protocol, I actually can't find you know the study protocol registered anywhere. And that's really the only tool you have to kind of evaluate you know whether the primary outcome was changed um, or if there are any deviations from what they plan to do that could um, bias towards a positive finding. So something to look for uh, in the appraisal of positive uh, studies uh, and that was missing in this case. So... I'm going to give this uh, 3.5 hotcakes rating, and that that's for the reason that I stated. I I don't think this is you know ready to change the way I'm counseling patients. Although I do think it's probably great to take breaks from sitting. Um, and even though sitting is not as bad as smoking, I I still think patients should try to make an effort to get, get just in general move your body, be be more active. Guys, I mean we've been on here for like 45 minutes. <laughs> I think we need to walk around. Oh, we've been. <laughs> I've been, We're doing I've been this biking on a treadmill. Under, I have a treadmill. I have a uh, one of those little mini bikes under my desk. I've just been pedaling the whole time. Pedaling away. All right, Nora. Let's let's get to your your study. Time to talk about one of our favorite topics on the study on the show. Poo. Uh, it's let's, so let's true. It. You can't escape it. It's one of our favorite favorite things. Um, and this is a really interesting. Uh, study that came out in December of 2022 in Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology by bon, uh, Bonwall et al. Um, and this is the results of the early FMT trial. Um, it looked to address the question, does the early use of fecal transplant uh, during first or second uh, episode of C. diff infection improve the rate of symptom resolution compared to the standard of care, which is uh, treatment with vancomycin alone? And importantly, this was looking at the addition of fecal transplant to vancomycin. The trial was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Um, It enrolled 42 patients ultimately 
Um, and these were patients who were diagnosed with either a first or a second episode of C. diff infection. Um, that's with greater than three watery stools per day and then a positive C. diff PCR. And patients were randomized either to uh, fecal transplant after treatment with vancomycin for standard of care for at least 10 days um, or just vancomycin alone with a placebo capsule. Um, the fecal transplant was given twice, as was the placebo, on day one and day three through seven for the second dose. Um, and patients were followed uh, for either eight weeks or until C. diff recurrence, if it happened earlier. Um, the primary outcome was the resolution of C. diff-associated diarrhea um, eight weeks after the study treatment. Um, and so the, the results top line were actually quite interesting, and the trial was actually stopped early after the interim analysis of the 42 of the intended 84 patients um, because there was a significantly lower rate of resolution of C. diff infections in the placebo group than the transplant group. To put specific numbers to that, um, there was a 90% resolution achieved with transplant. That's in 19 of 21 patients with a fecal transplant compared to 33% or 7 of 21 in the placebo arm. Um, so I'm curious what, uh, what questions you all had in reading this trial and what your initial thoughts were. So my, I, I have to ask my standard first question, Paul, this was called the early FMT trial. So <laughs> for the, what do you give A for effort or? <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of like it. It says what it is. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, they didn't really cram in an acronym, but I, you know, I. It was a trial that was done in Denmark. So I don't know whether they were just going and, for, for kind of clarity here. So universality, right? It may not have translated <laughs> exactly. well. This, this might exactly. actually be. I don't know what it was in joke. Danish. <laughs> 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 All right. If uh, any of our Danish listeners, please let us know. <laughs> we actually, I think we have some. I'm sure we do. Yeah, I'm being serious. Please let us know if there was a, a catchy title to this one. Um, all right, Paul, any co comments about this one? Uh, nothing earth shattering. I mean, I, it's I be curious to hear what the rest of y'all think. But like, this all makes sense to me. It should have worked out, and it looks like it did work out. So I think just mechanistically, this kind of met what my expectations were going to be. So I, I couldn't find a whole yeah. lot to complain about. I'll be honest. As, as I said to you beforehand, I mean, years ago on the show, we did a C. diff episode and our guest said, I think stool transplants in the future will be given after the course of antibiotics to repopulate the flora. And I mean, it just like you're, you're treating dysbiosis with antibiotics. Uh, that's the old way. Now this, this new way is like you, you treat, you treat the bacteria and then you, then you try to repopulate with healthy flora again. So it does. It does make sense mechanistically, and I mean, they were they were looking to enroll eighty four patients here, right? And they stopped mm -hmm. it early after they had only enrolled half the patients because of uh, because it was working so well. Uh, which is and the ninety percent efficacy. That's pretty much what we've seen with patients who are getting it for a third recurrence, right? Like the mm -hmm. the more traditional threshold for prescribing. This. And I'll just add this, this for me was very reminiscent of that paper in 2013 in the New England Journal, um, not by the same authors, but that was kind of the first, uh, you know, paper to gain, uh, you know, widespread uh, attention among a general audience, establishing the efficacy of FMT um, for uh, multiple recurrences of, of C. diff. And that was also stopped early. And we talked a lot 
you know, when that paper came out about what are the consequences of stopping studies early, mm-hmm. um, I, I actually don't think that that's a huge concern for me um, in this study. Um, they sort of captured the biologically relevant time frame for recurrence of C. diff, which CDC defines as uh, the first eight weeks. Um, one thing that is a little troubling to me is that the um, the, the amount of or the, the lack of resolution in the VANC group was a lot it, the VANC group did a lot worse than I think vancomycin-treated patients typically do. Um, CDC says that one in six people often uh, are, are at risk for experiencing recurrence after their first infection. Um, and, you know, only, um, I think only 33% of patients had resolution of, di- of diarrhea after vancomycin alone in, in the placebo group. So I'm not quite sure what was up with that. I do wonder, I know this the inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria were a little bit more uh, more um, welcoming than than yeah. other triers prior, um, in that they included immunocompromised patients, patients who lived in nursing homes. So I do wonder whether some of that has to do with some kind of overall frailty and uh, and uh, higher rec- risk recurrence just in the population generally. Yeah, that's great though. Yeah, so I, I I think Nora, do you do you want to get to the take home points? Is there any anything else you wanted to say about this one? I I think that this this data is exciting to me and and quite promising um, in terms of changing the standard of care for first first and second line uh, C diff infection. The the issue that we had talked a little bit about uh, before uh, that I think remains to be worked out is. Uh, standardization of these products and accessibility of these products. I think in the paper they quoted something like only 10% of patients who were eligible for third-line fecal transplant uh, treatment uh, actually went on to receive it. And so I think there's a gap between kind of the data and the the eligible populations and actually being able to get it. But we do now have an FDA-approved uh, fecal transplant drug as of December 2022. So, yeah, I, I think this is. I, I think we're going to start seeing this once the logistics are worked out. I, I imagine this, and may, maybe there will be more trials. But there, mm-hmm. I, I'm. I, I think we're going to start seeing it earlier. People go to these earlier than than uh, than we have seen in the past. And and maybe maybe they'll find a minimal effective dose. I think they were giving yeah. tw- at least 25 capsules here, like was the median or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting. And Nora, you mentioned just to, for further reading for the audience, they should read the methods section about how they prepared the <laughs> capsules. You, It was riveting. It's, I was, I was, that was the exact word I was going to use. It was <laughs> indeed riveting. Um, and on that note, kind of in terms of the specific number of capsules I would give this trial for hotcakes, I would probably say like four capsules. Four capsules. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and to to round things out here, Paul and I both talked about nutrition, fitness, weight loss type things. And I this, this popped up on my radar. It was a 60-minute segment that pretty much ran in my opinion, like an ad for semaglutide, which is a is a medication that I, I do prescribe often and I think has a great place. Uh, it's great to have now chronic medications that we're using to treat obesity. But the way that this 60 Minutes episode was edited, 
it just seemed more like it was an ad for the for the medication than actually uh, they didn't talk anything about going upstream and trying to prevent obesity and they didn't acknowledge at all that America is just like this toxic food environment where people are, uh, you know, really there, the, the right choice is almost never the easy choice when you're trying to choose what you're going to eat. And it's not clear what people should be eating. Um, I think school lunches, uh, having four kids in elementary school are a total nightmare. And, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's sugar in every meal and trying to prevent people from, uh, gaining weight should be a, a lot more of an effort than there is. And there's all sorts of malevolent forces, uh, at very high levels that are sort of, you know, people are pawns in this, as we were saying before. But I, I do think that the, the other part of the 60 minutes episode that I didn't love was that they, they, they kind of came off the way it was edited as if patients, there's no agency that we have no hope that we're all just going to become obese. And I, I don't think that's true. And I think we really need to, uh, as physicians try to advocate when we can try to get our patients, uh, moving, eating the right things and trying wherever we can voting to get, get this situation improved. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else has any comments on this, but, uh, semaglutide and these drugs are just blowing up right now. And I feel like we need them because things are so bad that we have so many people that just like, that's the only way they can be helped right now, but they're hopefully we could prevent people from getting to that point. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's, you're talking to a primary care doctor that speaks to my soul, like sort of education and prevention. And, you know, I think we think so much about preventing things like cancer or disease. And I, I think you can also, part of our job is just to maintain and preserve health as well. And I think sort of doing that early and making sure that education is part of the process is important. And, you know, like we talked about off air, right. You know, we're, I'll say the phrase again, I think we're sort of fighting a capitalist hellscape that sort of reinforces a lot of this stuff. So you just, you do the best that you can, but I think you're, you're right that the education has to start early. Um, and, and, you know, we have to give people the, the tools to actually preserve their health. And then, Nora, I just wanted to ask, I mean, you're the editor of the Digest. Will Ozempic face be covered in the Digest? <laughs> I, I have a feeling it'll be coming up in the next few issues. It's a hot topic right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, so, I mean, it is a very interesting phenomenon that I think we'll see more and more and uh, and that obviously has had a lot of coverage in the news, kind of broadly speaking, not just in the medical space. Yeah. So there there was a New York Times article a couple of weeks back, probably by the time this airs, that uh, just talking about people's face becoming so gaunt that they have just skin hanging off it and it looks like they're aging super fast because... I think uh, semaglutide has fallen into the hands of a lot of people who maybe don't need to lose so much weight. Um, the enthusiasm has has kind of run wild. So, uh, yeah, look it up, everybody. Ozempic face. <laughs> uh, any any final comments before we get to the outro? I think we've done a great job tonight, Rahul. Thank you for guiding us through all these articles. No, oh, anytime. I I didn't really do anything. You all are guiding yourselves. This has been another episode of the Curb Centers, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Where's it going to be? All right. Oh, nice. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curb Centers Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. 
and we're committed to high value practice changing knowledge and we want your feedback so please subscribe rate and review the show you can follow us on youtube spotify or apple podcasts you can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com reminder that this and most episodes are available for cme through vcu health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org i wanted to thank Paul, Rahul, and Nora for helping to write and produce this episode. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto and Jen Watto run our social media. As Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. I've been Dr. Nora Toronto. <laughs> and as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.